right. Good morning, beloved. I want to uh, send us off or point it that way. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. morning we're going to be covering verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. And I want to uh, begin today by first reading our text together and then we can unpack these verses and see how each of these apply. So beginning in uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, this is the reading of God's living and infallible word. In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of the wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishability quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by fear. You husbands, in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, as we've uh, previously um, covered, Peter is writing to a persecuted group of Christians who have been scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and one of his purposes in writing them is to encourage them on how to live in the midst of an ungodly pagan culture that hates Christ and is set against them. For example, you'll recall he said back in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the pagans honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so Peter's focus here is evangelistic. Evangelistic. And he knows that the way that we live is crucial to the effect it will have on the message that we share. Because it's not only what we say, but it's how we live, as verse 12 says, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Beloved, they are watching, I assure you. Now, Peter addresses three uh, arenas of God-ordained social interactions in which these play out. The first two that we have covered already were back in chapter 2. There was the Christian citizen living amongst the pagan governments, the civil magistrates. That was in verses 13 through 17. 
Next, there was the Christian servant working for the unbelieving master. That was in verses 18 to 20. And then the third one is the one that we are covering today, a Christian wife living with an unbelieving husband. Those are the three primary arenas, by the way, in which we live. Society at large, you could call it the state, the workplace, and the family. Those are the three social environments in which we live, going from the greater to the lesser. And in each case, Peter calls us to submit, to submit. In chapter 2, verse 13, by way of review, Peter says, Submit yourselves to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors sent by him. And then again in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, In regard to an employer, servants, be submissive to your masters. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, in regard to marriage, he says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And what Peter is saying is, is if we're going to have an effect on society, on our workplaces, in our homes, with the unbelieving, we need to engage in these arenas with a submissive spirit about us. Submission is the key word. Now, notice also what he says there in verse 7. Peter writes, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. So the same idea for the husbands, we'll talk about that when we get there, but we are to have a very understanding spirit when dealing with an unsaved wife. So Peter's command is to submit, and he repeats this command because he knows if we are to have an impact on our culture, we must submit to the social order of which God has designed. And what does that mean? We cannot be rebels. We cannot use our newfound freedom in Christ as a covering for evil, verse 16 says. And we cannot act as though we're superior to the social order that God has put us in. We are not all sovereign. I'm sovereign in the state. I'm a sovereign person you see we have only been left here for one reason and that is an evangelistic purpose we are here to make christ known in our societies we're here to make christ known in our workplaces we're here to make christ known in our families those are the three primary environments of our existence and so the question that peter is getting at is this what does a wife do when she is married to an unsaved husband or what does a husband do when he's married to an unsaved wife does he feel superior to her does he lord over her every move or does he treat her with indifference because she's not a citizen of the kingdom and what does she do does she reject his authority his head over the household is she to nag him every day or week and make ultimatums about him coming to church? Should she just leave her unsaved husband and go marry a godly man? What is the proper responsibility of each person when you are married to an unbeliever? Well, we're going to address these very important questions here this morning, but 
before we begin, let me first be clear what this teaching is not. These verses here in chapter 3 are not a discourse of a Christian marriage. Okay, this is a discourse of a mixed marriage, what Paul calls unequally yoked. Okay, it's when you have a marriage between a Christian spouse and a non-Christian spouse. You're married, and let's say your wife gets saved. You haven't. So that's the whole context of all these verses that we are about to read, and it's very important to understand that, though there are many principles that do apply to godly marriage. But let's begin with number one as we look at the wife's responsibility. The wife's responsibility. Now, Peter, I want you to understand, is not biased, but he gives six verses to wives and one verse to the husbands. All right? And there's a very important reason why, because you might thinking, wait a minute here, this is way out of balance, but it's not. When a wife became a Christian, the potential for difficulty within the marriage was much greater than when a husband became a Christian. Because the husband was already in charge of the house anyways. And in that society, if a husband became a Christian, the wife would just sort of dutifully um, follow along and accept this as her own religion as she wasn't allowed to have a mind of her own. So the potential for conflict was greatly lessened. But when a woman who was viewed as a slave or equal to an animal, and not much more, became a Christian independently of her husband, the potential for conflict and embarrassment and difficulty was much greater. And that is why Peter gives much more attention here in these verses to this particular issue. Becoming a Christian can certainly pose um, serious problems in the marriage today, but oppose even greater problems back then. Here's just a simple scenario. A woman becomes a Christian, and all of a sudden she feels superior to her unsaved husband. She feels like now that she knows what the Bible teaches and belongs to God, she knows so much more than he does. How can he possibly be trusted to lead this family. And not only that, but she keeps meeting all these God-fearing men who love Christ, and she becomes envious of them because she sees in that the potential of such a wonderful life united under Christ. And over time, she starts to become indifferent to her own husband. And after all, she is now free in Christ. She has a new Lord a new master. It would be easy for her to begin responding to her husband with disdain and indifference or even with rejection. If she's not careful, he can even become repulsive to her. So it was important then to realize what life must have been for a woman who became a Christian independently from her husband. The abuse that many of the women endured during this time would certainly escalate. Socially, it would have been immensely embarrassing to the husband because no woman ever did that independently of her husband. He would have been shamed among his peers, adding to pressure to reel his wife in. 
Rumors would have spread around the village about this man's wife having this mystical relationship that she takes off to with this guy, Jesus Christ. For her to be bold enough and brave enough to do that could put her in a very, very dangerous situation. I mean, think about it. In the early church, oftentimes um, when they gathered, they were secretive meetings. And where you had jealous men that were prone to think that they were not only hiding secrets from the government, but hiding secrets from their husbands as well. Um, that could oppose a lot of problems. And many of the first converts to Christianity were, of course, women. So the reason why Peter directs these six verses at women is precisely because of the potential difficulty um, sociably and the problems that would come. That, that's the issue. So how then does a Christian wife relate to her unsaved husband in such a way as to fulfill her mission to win him to Christ? And I want to answer that by um, looking at our text. Um, now before we, we see what Peter tells her to do, I want you to see what Peter doesn't tell her to do, okay? Please notice, he doesn't tell the Christian wife, please note this, to leave her husband. Okay, he doesn't tell her that. He doesn't say, well, now that you're a Christian, get out of there and go find yourself a Christian man. Uh, go find somebody who thinks like you do, loves Christ like you do, and, and go have a happy union with them. No, he doesn't say that. Please notice what it says in verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, there's a number of passages that um, we could look at besides this, but I think for um, this context, it would be helpful for us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you want to turn there and, and you're concerned about these verses, um, these are some important verses dealing with this topic. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and this gives us a fuller explanation than how far Peter goes on how God says to handle this very important issue that I know is a very heavy burden for some of you. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, notice what he says in verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, in other words, if he wants to stay married to you, it says she should not divorce him. So Paul says that's forbidden by God, don't divorce him. In fact, notice what the next verse says. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. In other words, uh, the blessings from God will, will spill over, if you will, onto the unbelieving husband or wife just because God is blessing them. They'll reap the benefits. See, a, a non-Christian man married to a Christian woman doesn't know how fortunate he is. Now, that doesn't mean he gets salvation through that means. It simply means that outwardly, in this life at least, he reaps um, by residual some of the blessings by the very fact that he's married to her. So if the unsaved husband wants to stay, the believing wife must not divorce him. It's part of God's plan for them to stay married. And you say, well, what if he wants a divorce? Paul answers that in the very next verse. Notice verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. Let him leave. 
the brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Okay, so if he wants out, you let him leave. You're not under bondage anymore. That is, the bond has been broken. Verse 16 says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, the point is this. If he wants to stay, let him stay. But if he wants out because he can't stand your Christian testimony and your Christian friends and all there is is constant war in your house, Paul says, let him go. You're not under bondage anymore. Paul's point is, is it's counterproductive. Don't try to hold it all together if all it creates is nothing but arguments and chaos and war in your life. God has called us to peace. Now, going back to our text, Peter doesn't um, say all of what Paul says. <laughs> he simply says in verse 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive. Saying the same thing, just a lot less words. Be submissive to your own husbands. So that, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word, by the behavior of their wives. He says, if, if you want to win that husband to Christ, if you want to do all that you can, and only God knows whether that will happen, <laughs> no guarantees, as Paul just said, but if you want to make the, the, the most maximum impact in his life, then be a submissive wife. That's his command. And, uh, Peter's been pretty consistent on that, hasn't he? <laughs> if you, you want to have a maximum impact on society in which you live, then be a model submissive citizen. If you want to have a maximum impact at your job, then be a model submissive employee. And if you want to make the maximum impact on your unsafe husband, be a model submissive wife. It's the same principle, continued all the way through. In fact, that's why he says in verse 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive. It's that same verb going back to chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 18. Hupa atasaso, it's a military term, which means to, to rank under, to uh, be in subjection to. It is God's design for marriage. Wives submit to the, the headship of their husbands. Women are not inferior in character they are not inferior in intelligence they are not inferior in virtue they are not inferior spiritually they are not inferior giftedness they're not inferior in any way period they have been simply given a role that puts them into the place of submission to a headship which is residing in their own husbands and would you please note this in verse one be submissive to your own husbands. Not anyone's husband, your own husband. And every time in the Bible such an injunction is made, it always says, your husbands or your own husband. It's always in the um, possessive pronoun, which speaks to intimacy and the bonding of marriage. This is God's beautiful design. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, tells us the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman 
is man and the head of Christ is God. That is what Paul also wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 12 through 13. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. We are all one in Christ, but God has distinctive roles for both the man and for the woman. Now, the reason... For this is so that, in, in verse 1, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, this is the husbands, and, and by the way, this is a, um, a first-class conditional in the Greek, which means it's a reality. <laughs> it could be translated, since they are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And please note this, Peter is not saying they will be saved without the word. That's not what he's saying. You'll remember uh, back in, in chapter 1, verse 23, he said, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but of imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. Salvation is through the living word. But what he is saying here is that they may be one, Without a word, not the word. <laughs> a word, not the word. So his message here to the wife is, it is more important who you are, your behavior, than what you say. That's the whole point that he's making here. They, they are lost because they are disobedient to the word of God, but through your loving submission to them, they may be one without you speaking a word. But how is that possible, you ask? by his wife's behavior, by her conduct. Man, what a wonderful insight into how God works. Amen? The, the, the lovely, gracious, gentle, submissiveness of a Christian woman to her unsaved hum, husband is the strongest evangelistic tool she has. It's not what she says, it is who she is. The woman is to submit to her husband's leadership that God has designed as a principle. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. Colossians 3.18, the same thing. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. And then Paul, when writing to Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 5, says, Wives, be self-controlled, pure, kind, and submissive to your own husbands. And again, the possessive pronoun is there every time such a statement is made. The wife is to submit to her husband's leadership. And this is her greatest tool of evangelism, the virtue of her wifely character. So the first duty of a wife then is submission. There's a second responsibility in verse two. Let's call it faithfulness. Number one was submission. Number two is faithfulness. Verse two says, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So <laughs> what does having a chaste and respectful Behavior mean? Well, it basically means having a, an irreproachable conduct. All right? It means, number one, she is faithful to God, and number two, she is faithful to her husband. 
faithful to God. She's faithful to her husband. The word chaste in the Greek, um, hagenos, it means to be pure and unadulterated. Okay, so it means that you're not fooling around with anybody else. And respectful means that, that you're showing respect and honor to him. And you demonstrate that respect. The next principle is described in verses 3 through 6 and could be summed up as modesty. Notice what it says in verse 3. Peter says, your adornment then must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, and putting on dresses. Um, Peter, important matter for um, the Christian wife trying to win her unsaved um, husband. He says the, the normal preoccupation of a worldly woman is with her outside adornment, right? We all know that. And, and, but Peter is saying yours, however, must not be merely. The, the commentators added that, and they add that to help us. Not merely external. So Peter is saying here, you woman, um, you can't uh, do up your hair nice, or is he saying that you can't uh, win your husband, you can't wear any jewelry, or what about dresses? Saying, women, no more dresses? No, I don't think so. The point Peter's trying to make here is do not let that be merely your constant preoccupation to the disregard of the character that's inside, your godly character. Following women have always tended to be preoccupied with the outside. But that's not where your true beauty lies, sisters. And I promise you, ladies, that external beauty does not capture the heart of your husband if there's nothing on the inside. <laughs> in fact, notice what he says there in verse 4. But let your adornment beware the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person. Sisters, this is where your true beauty lies. This is the beauty that shines from the inside out. And us men see it. And we love it. Listen, here's the temptation. This is a woman who, who has an unsaved husband. Uh, she doesn't have a great relationship with him. And so you can see how she could easily sort of turn in the whole opposite direction and, and start spending her time and life indulging in herself to, to make her externally beautiful, all that she could possibly be. And Peter says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not how you win him to Christ. If you're going to be preoccupied with something, let it be with the hidden person of the heart. That will be, make you far more beautiful. In fact, uh, have you ever noticed that to be true? The most beautiful women on the inside tend to be the most beautiful women on the outside as well. I experience it every day with my own wife. I got points. She's there. You know, the, the way she, she loves me with her inner person only adds to her incredible outward beauty. All right? That's very attractive to us men. It's, if it's a running faucet and it's, and it's always going, it becomes a lot, a lot more difficult. But the question is, is what are some of the qualities of this, this, inner, this inner person that God is talking about here? Notice what it says in the rest of verse 4. But let 
it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality. This is not something temporary, sisters. Imperishable. It will not fade. It will not die of a gentle and quiet spirit. <laughs> the word used here for gentle comes from a word referring to um, humble and, and meek attitude expressed in, in patient submissiveness. The word quiet actually means to be peaceful and still. And, and it's really like a picture of a, a beautiful, peaceful, still lake. This is the means that God will use the hidden person of the heart. Your inner beauty that, that radiates out to your husband is gentle and peaceful and calm and has a quiet spirit about it. These are virtues and, and behaviors that the faithful woman of God is to pursue and cultivate so that according to Peter, 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 so that you may win your husband without a word. It's precious in the sight of God. Did you notice that? It is precious in the sight of God. Now in verse 5, Peter gives um, an illustration. He says, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Who are the, these holy women, you ask? These are faithful uh, women from the Old Testament. He says, who hoped in God. What does that mean? That means they were true believers. Their hope was in God. Peter says, I'm not telling you anything new here. This isn't new. <laughs> in, in Old Testament times, the women who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves in way being submissive to their own husbands that's the proper adornment they're the models that you want to follow not the ones that you see on all the magazine covers sisters those women aren't models models of what models of virtue no models of character no models of purity no models of inner beauty no Models of modesty? No. Models of submissiveness? No. Models of what? They're, they're mannequins. Whatever is there is only on the outside. It's all temporal and surely it's shallow. What God has for you is an imperishable quality. Imperishable. So if you want a model to follow, don't look at them. Open your Bibles and look for the holy women who are submissive to their own Husbands, they're the models that you are to pattern your life over. And he names one right there in verse 6. Sarah. Why Sarah, you ask? Because verse 6 tells us that Sarah obeyed Abraham. You see, she's a model of obedience. And it says, calling him Lord. That would be real popular today, would it? <laughs> yes, Lord, what would you like, please? See how far you women have drifted. <laughs> it's in your Bible, highlight it. <laughs> but with all kidding aside, what kept Sarah going? It 
wasn't just Abraham. It was her hope in God. It was her hope in God. That's where your hope needs to be. It can't be, I hope I get this dream job. That will surely change my whole life. It can't be, I hope I find the right husband. Nope, none of that will fix your life. Your hope must be in Christ. You must come to him through faith, and he alone becomes your living hope. And as he sanctifies you, he becomes the very core of your being, that hidden person in your heart. And that's where all the rest of this stuff flows from. Your hope is in God, not in this world, because as Romans 8.28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Sarah hoped in God. She's a model you can follow. And by the way, calling him in verse 6 is in the uh, present participle, present tense. It means she was constantly calling him Lord, constantly in submission to him. But why does Peter choose Sarah? Because of the very next statement, notice what she says. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children. If you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Peter knows that if you're a believer, you're a child of Abraham by faith, right? You remember that, don't you? It's outlined in uh, Romans chapter 4, 11 through 12, Galatians uh, 3, 6 through 7. You're, you're a child of Abraham. Father Abraham, we are the sons of Abraham by faith. And so here, Peter's making the connection saying, Sister, you're not only the child of Abraham by faith, but you'll be the children of Sarah by modeling her as well. Isn't that cool? Being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children. If you do what is right without being frightened by fear. What do you think that means? He means without being intimidated. All right? I believe that ever since the fall, Satan has been trying to use whatever means necessary to not only attack the, the nuclear family unit and husband and wife and man and woman as he created them, but he wants to usurp man's calling to headship. Started in the garden with the serpent right there. If Adam was fulfilling his God-given role to protect Eve, the serpent wouldn't have been able to isolate Eve on her own. But getting back to what Peter's saying, do what is right without being frightened by fear. If, if you're a Christian wife and, and you have an unsaved husband, you might be fearful to totally submit. Understandably, right? You might be frightened of where it might lead you, or, or what sin that might result in, okay? But just like submission to the magistrates that we talked about, 
all right, in submission to our employers, you stop short of that. You don't sin. All right? At that point, I must obey God rather than man. God has called me to this submission, but not in order to sin. And that's what the apostles did. They, they obeyed the magistrates until they no longer could, and then they said, sorry, at this point, you've crossed the line. I must obey God rather than man. But in the meantime, we are commanded to submit. Peter says, don't be intimidated. Don't be frightened. Don't be fearful. Just do what is right. Do what is right. Okay? Do what God has told you. And what is right is to submit to your husband. And this is precious in the sight of God. This is a precious thing. That's the principle. It's the principle of submission, uh, submission and, and faithfulness and, and modesty. Stuff we've just thrown out the door, both us men and women, of saying what's important to be a godly woman and a man that loves them and protects them and cares for them. And Peter says, so your husbands may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. And, and then finally, in verse 7, we turn the tables. And let's look uh, quickly in just this one verse on what the husband's responsibility. What is the husband's responsibility? How does a believing husband win his unbelieving wife to Christ? And this was, again, much less frequent back then, but, but we know, sadly, this still happens today. Okay? So I want you to notice how Peter opens verse 7. He says, you husbands in the same way. In, in the same way as what? In the same way you submit to. There is a submission on our part. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives submit to the husbands. Husbands submit to the wives. Now, husbands don't submit to the headship, the, the, the leadership of the wife. But we do submit, listen to this, to the needs of the wife. To the needs. We submit our own agendas to meet the needs of our wife. And yes, even if she's not a Christian. Notice, again, what it says. You husbands in the same way. Just like the believing wife. Just like the believing servant. Just like the believing citizen. Now, what should his attitude be? Let me give you three things. Number one, he should be considerate. Considerate. Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Okay? This is, again, present tense. It means constantly, continually. Live with your wife in an understanding way. That's the word uh, genosis. It means a deep experiential knowledge and what is that? Sensitive to her needs. Sensitive to her feelings. It speaks of sexual intimacy as well. It means to know intimately. To know. Genesis 4.1 Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. So you are to live your wife in the most intimate way possible. Peter uses the word live. Live 
with your wife in an understanding way. That's a word, soon, well, I'm not going to try to say it. It means to dwell together, to stay close. Again, to be intimate. To be intimate. D don't cut yourself off from her deepest um, emotional, physical, spiritual needs just because she's not a Christian. <laughs> you fulfill that dimension for her. You're her husband. So not only are we to be, number one, considerate, but number two, as husbands, we should provide love and protection. Love, protection. Far from uh, abusing her or ignoring her or being indifferent to her. How awful it must have been for these, these women back then. But, but even today, you are to sacrificially um, submit, to be sensitive to that unsaved wife. You're to be thoughtful and respectful. And frankly, into this culture that Peter is writing to, this would have been revolutionary. This, for a man to become a Christian and all of a sudden become totally respectful and sensitive and caring towards his wife, this would really turn some heads. But that's exactly what it says. Okay? Ephesians 5 commands us to nourish our wives and to cherish them. To cherish them. Verse 25 says... Husband, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her. We should protect our wives. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, as someone laid on his life for his friends. That's what Christ did for us. And we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice what else Peter says in verse 7. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. Now, what's he mean as with someone weaker? Well, <laughs> first of all, weaker is comparative. What's, what's that compared to? Weaker? Weak. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. She might be weaker, you're weak. <laughs> Don't get too overconfident, men, with your great abilities. But God created the woman in general as the, the physical, weaker vessel. And again, these are the roles that God has created for us to walk in. Our calling as, as men as something to protect our wives. There's an inner calling on every man's heart to protect my wife. <laughs> I'm protecting my wife, right? And so... God put that into our DNA. We want to protect our wives, to provide for them, to cherish and to nourish our wives. And then thirdly is companionship. And I love this. Notice how Peter ends this. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. This is kind of interesting. Uh, what is the grace of life? It's not eternal life. It's not saving grace. Grace simply here means a gift. And think about it for a moment. What's the best and greatest worldly gift that God has ever given to us on this earth? Marriage. Intimate relationship. And that picture is Christ and his church. That's God's grace gift to everyone. Not only for Christians, for anyone. And it's a covenant. 
whether you recognize it or not. <laughs> but it's his gift to everyone for marriage. And what's the world coming after again? To destroy the nuclear family? To destroy the covenant of marriage. Okay? These things aren't by coincidence. This is a grace gift to everyone, your heirs together, in this beautiful covenant marriage. And he's not speaking like spiritually here. He's speaking maritally. And, and we know that that's what he's talking about because he's talking about an unsaved wife because he says, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way. So he ties it to chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. So he's saying, look, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Honor her. Cultivate this companionship, friendship, Respect her as heirs together of the grace of life. The best gift on earth that life has to offer. And again, this idea is totally foreign in Peter's day, right? Women were not allowed at all to associate even as friends outside with their own husbands. They were best to clean the house and to bear children behind closed doors. That was their life. So he says... Husbands, do that. And if you are not considerate, and if you don't show her honor, and if you are not a companion, then look at the end of verse 7. Your prayers will be what? Hindered. And presumably, what is he praying for? The salvation of his wife. Right? But that prayer is going to be hindered, men. If you turn around and he's treating her, Without companionship, if he's not providing for her, if he's not protecting her, and if he's not being considerate. Why is God going to answer that prayer? So, to sum it up, how do you win an unsaved spouse? Number one, your hope is in God. Your hope has to be in God. And if you're living this as a reality right now, you, you know this to be true. And how my heart aches for, for all of you who have a, a wife or a husband who's unsafe. I can only imagine the pain that, that you walk in. You, you, need, you need hope in God. You need to believe in His promises. You need to live a humble, pure, faithful life. So that they observe the modesty, your respective and considerate behavior. You adorn them with the hidden person of the heart, so they can see Christ. So whether you're dealing with civil magistrates, the boss on the job, or your husband, or your wife in the home, the role is always the same. You submit to God's ordained pattern for these social relationships, and you live it out in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And let me wrap it up by reading some of the verses that we've already read. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps." Our instructions are clear, beloved. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. 
Fear God. Honor the king. And I pray this teaching has greatly blessed you. Um, at this time, I want to let you know if you are in need of prayers this morning, if you have any questions concerning the life, death, or resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, you feel free to come down here, and I'd love to stay after service or talk with you this morning or to pray with you at this time. And uh, I want to invite you to please stand as we sing the song of invitation in Christ alone. Thank you. <laughs>